0: NISA sits in one of the most diverse counties in the country. And when I walk the halls and I see the kids, it just warms my heart. Because you see kids from every possible demographic. It is tapping into that creativity of the whole of humanity. It is that that makes NISA so unique. And it is that that should be the model
1: on the national level. Its distinct approach to STEM learning and engagement design, make, play is a pathway to opportunity for all, especially for young people who would otherwise not have access to a STEM education. Every child can change the world for the better. They just need to be inspired and empowered.
0: You just heard Asaji Amasaji and Dr Anthony Fauci talking about the New York Hall of Science or abbreviated to NYSCI. It's a science museum located in the borough of Queens, New York, and mainly focuses on education for children. Its audience consists primarily of city children for whom the exposure to science is something new. Today, we will be joined by the President and CEO of NYSI, Dr. Margaret Honey, to try and answer the question, how does digitalization and technology impact education? Welcome to The Great Indoors, a podcast where we look at the technological implications brought about by the next industrial revolution and how this can potentially help solve the biggest problems facing humanity. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and joining me as ever is my co-pilot and producer, Larissa Our guest today, Dr. Margaret Honey, is widely recognized for her work using digital technologies to support children's learning across the disciplines of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, STEM. Dr. Honey has helped to shape the best thinking about learning and technology with special attention to traditionally underserved audiences. She created one of the first internet-based professional development programs in the United States. And from her early involvement in the award-winning and groundbreaking public television series, The Voyage of the Mimi, which incidentally also launched the career of a young Ben Affleck, Margaret Honey has led some of the country's most innovative and successful education efforts. Myself, as a father of four children who are both immersed in technology and education, I really can't wait to dive into this topic today. And I'm so excited and honored to have Margaret as a guest on TGI Today. So I'd like to welcome our guests to The Great Indoors today, Margaret. Honey, Margaret, welcome to The Great Indoors.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. And where are you enjoying The Great Indoors from today, Margaret? Margaret.
1: Well, I am in uh, New York City. I am in the wonderful borough of Queens. uh, And the museum I run is located in Flushing Meadow Corona Park, which has the distinction not only of being home to the Mets, go Mets, Mm -hmm. also to the U.S. Open. And um, historically, we were the the part of the city that hosted two world's fairs. Ah, yes.
0: Yeah, I've been in New York when the U.S. Open was on. And it's a really great story, but my uh, my daughter got to meet a lot of the tennis players that were staying in the hotel. There was a real atmosphere around New York when the US Open is on. So that's great. Now, this is a question I ask all my guests, but if we could introduce you with a piece of music, or if you could have an entrance <laughs> song, what would that be?
1: Oh, my God. That is a tough question. Um, you know, I think... Um, Happy by uh Pharrell. Because I'm the happy club along if you feel like a room without a roof. Because I'm the happy club along if you feel like happiness is the truth. you know, it's in a period of time that has been complicated and challenging for, for all of us, really. Um I think a bit of uplift is is the order of the day
0: that's always the perfect song for a friday afternoon always the perfect <laughs> song um and so margaret you're the president and ceo of the new york hall of science you have an illustrious career uh, just for our listeners give us a bit of a, a history on on how you came to be there and and your background to date
1: absolutely so Early in my career, I was actually working on my doctorate in developmental psychology at Columbia. I got lucky. Um, A fellow student was, um, she had been working at what's now called Sesame Workshop. Back then, it was called Children's Television Workshop. And we we were literally standing in the registrar's line. So this was before the day of technology facilitating our lives in all sorts of ways. And... I was talking to her and I said, I really need to find a job. She said, Oh, you should come, come talk to us. We're starting a new division of the company called the children's computer workshop. You know, it was an incredible opportunity. I I spent about five years there. This was in the early eighties. And it was really pre, you know, pre the age of computers becoming ubiquitous in our lives. And what we were working on was creating what we used to call edutainment software, but it was, you know, educational software that kind of leveraged the multiple brands of the workshop, but of course Sesame street and was really designed as Sesame street was designed originally to, um, engage kids in learning in a fun and joyful way. And the workshop, um, It was an interesting moment in history because there was a lot of talk that the um, home PC market was going to take off. By the mid-80s, we were going to be in a different place. And, you know, reflecting back, that really didn't happen until the mid-90s when the internet became a thing in all of our lives and gained, you know, a kind of ubiquity that we all wanted to connect with the work of that division of the workshop got got reduced in size and folded in. and I was, again, very fortunate to land at Bank Street College of Education in New York, a wonderful progressive education institution that is comprised of a graduate school, a research division, um, an education services division. And back when I worked there, there was an interactive media group and a kind of R&D arm called the Center for Children and Technology. And I went to work there and my first experience was working on what we called, again, dating myself, a mixed mixed media program. So we created, we created a video series that aired on PBS. We created computer software that went along with that and we created print materials. And all of those materials were kind of repackaged and sold into schools. The series was called The Voyage of the Mimi um, and the executive producer was a man named sam gibbon and you know it was one of the most formative experiences of my life and i you know the work that I do now at the new york hall of science there's there's never a day that doesn't go by where you know i don't think back to lessons I learned among that incredible group of people that were producing the Voyage of the Mimi because I think what you know what the team leaned into was, um, Sam used to say, you know, we need to make something so irresistible that you will never hear no from a teacher. She will want it in her classroom, no matter what, because her students will be so in love with it. So Sam used the in the video series, the conceit of drama combined with documentary to Engage kids in the first season of the Mimi, it was all about studying whales in the North Atlantic in the second season, it was about the ancient maya, both rich stem topics um, each dramatic episode would be paired with a documentary where the kid actors would dive deeper with a real life scientist so really clever format, really deeply engaging material, and you know a a kind of Child-centered sensibility that I think you know designed uh, the resources, the video, the software, the print materials in such a way that you know invited kids to be the problem solvers. And lessons learned there have yeah. continued to inform my work in a big way.
0: And, and was it so? You said it was formative and 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 obviously memorable. You you recall to this present day. Was it because you were innovating with what you were doing? Was it because you were seeing incredibly, you know, really great results from from this project as well? Was it a combination of both of those things?
1: It, it was very much a combination of both of those things. You know, I, I was a kid back in the day, and my job was <clears throat> literally to take the materials out into classroom settings and show them to children and figure out what they loved, what was confusing, all of those kinds of things. And, and also to do early stage testing of the computer software. So, you know, we were, we were doing that um, test innovate model before it became a thing in the world. It was very core to the development of the program. You know, we were working with our audiences, our customers to get their feedback and to make sure that, really two things, three things were happening that we paid attention to. One was, you know, were, were kids understanding the concepts? Were the materials deeply engaging and sticky, right? Like they didn't want to put them down. And um, the third was particularly around the software, which was kind of novel back then, was the whole usability piece where, were, and it, but it wasn't just the software, it was the whole package. Did teachers find the conceit of, you know, the the sort of more classic um, paper-based instructional materials combined with video and software? Did that feel like a workable paradigm? And for the most part, it did. And I I think in part because for all of the teachers we worked closely with, the Mimi not only was clearly so appealing to their students, which teachers deeply value but it was also um so rich in opportunity that they could build upon and mm-hmm. jump off jump off wow. of. so i do have a favorite story from that time
0: okay let's hear it great
1: okay so i was um working at a school not working at the school but using the school as a research site the school mm-hmm. was it was founded by a woman named Debbie Meyer who is a bit of a more than a bit of she is very much in educational innovator and legend, one of the teachers in the school who had a combined fifth, sixth grade classroom, he actually found us. He called us up and I remember the young woman who worked as kind of the office assistant sort of holding up the phone and going, Margaret, you know, there's somebody who wants you to come do research in a school. He's he's building a whole year long curriculum around the ancient Maya. And I was sort of like, oh, geez, we have all our research sites. Can we really take on another? And, but then I, I talked to him and, and I agreed to show up. And um, I always say, I walked into Bruce's classroom. His name was Bruce Kanz, fabulous, extraordinary educator. And I never left. So it's, it's still here in my head to this day. And um, to give you an example of the kind of thing I would do and end its impact, so i would test video rough cuts with this, with the kids um and i'd show up every week with you know with well maybe not every week but every few weeks with a new episode the episodes in you know true dramatic format always ended with a cliffhanger and there was one episode where so in this version of the mimi the mimi was a boat i should say that right. the conceit was they were doing research to Find an ancient Mayan site that they knew existed, but no formal archaeologists had ever found. And they knew it existed because artifacts from the site kept turning up on the black market. So you know, right away you begin to see there's like tension and drama and bad guys, and you know, like and elements of surprise and finding the unexpected. And um, in this episode, they are diving off the coast of Cosmo. And they, there's a moment toward the end of the episode when they realize there is a giant Maya Stella buried under the sand and they begin to dust it off. And they realize that very likely contains the clue to this lost city. So the, you know, the, the science moment in the video is how do you get this 5,000 pound slab of stone off the floor? of the ocean and up onto the boat. And they figure it out. And what I love to tell, there are two things I love to tell about this story. One is when the team came back and I was way too junior to ever get to go on these amazing trips. But when they came back, um, they were all a little grouchy. And I'm like, what, well, you know, guys, what happened? And they were like, oh, we, we, went, we went way over budget. You know, the shoot took three days longer. And I was like, why? And they were like, Sam wouldn't fake the science. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And what they told was a story of finding a truly legitimate way of raising this object off the ocean floor that involved tying ropes to it, and then using um, air from the air tanks in that filled big plastic Garbage bags and literally floated the object to the surface. But it wasn't in the script. They had to figure it out. They had to improvise, as often happens. And everybody was a little tired and grumpy when they came back. Well, when I took that episode into Bruce's classroom, the kids were riveted and they were like, wait, 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 what happens? You know, like they could not (laughs) wait for me to come back. And I came back, you know, a few weeks later and Bruce said, You've, you've got to go talk to the student over there. His name was Jose. I went over to talk to him. It was a very informal school, so the teacher was called by his first name. I said, Bruce, Bruce tell me to ask you about your project. Like, what have you been working on? Well, it turns out that he tried to replicate the entire scene in his bathtub. <laughs> and he used a brick for the giant Stella string and little baggies that he tied to the string and i'm like well what did you use for air and he said you know those little bendy straws and it just i tell that story a lot because it is a story about you know the power of media the power of technology mm-hmm. particularly when designed to enable young people to have agency in figuring out how to solve problems it's you know the meme was never about telling you what to think. It was about inviting you into a conversation.
0: Because education, you know, it, once you get the interest and the engagement, that's the key, right? Once you've got them hooked on a concept, like you said, using different media, using these riveting storylines, and then seeing the actual demonstrable impact that has uh, on the students. I mean, no wonder it's a fantastic story. It's It's, right. it's brilliant. And so that yeah. was... That was then something that you've continued throughout your career, right? Uh, Absolutely deploying. continued,
1: yeah. yeah. So, you know, I grew up, I grew up to run the Center for Children and Technology and was there for, for many, many years. Um, the only year I've ever spent at a for-profit ed tech company and then decided that, you know, the place for me was, what I would say now is where I could really lean into developing learning tools and program and product that is aspirational in intent meant to you know do the kinds of things that textbooks really can't do Mm -hmm. meant to inspire engage enliven you know all of those words that i associate with high quality learning
0: Mm -hmm. you're at the new york hall of science now you're looking at how technology can impact education improve education and I think over the last couple of years, as as everybody knows, because of the pandemic and other reasons that are other crises that are happening uh, in the world, there's been an acceleration of digitalization, technology adoption in all different areas, and we discussed them on this podcast. What have you seen, Margaret, during the last three years from an educational perspective, where you've seen a real acceleration? of how technology is being deployed in the educational process. And the obvious one, obviously, is video conferencing and children yeah. working from doing their education from school. But what has surprised you the most or has really made you think differently about everything?
1: There's so much potential and possibility that can be realized with technologies. You know, I think kind of in the aggregate, we we continue to be a long way off from hitting the mark in part because we focus on pretty narrow outcomes in many of our K12 schools where english language arts and mathematics in in fairly sort of constrained senses of those disciplines take precedent what i saw during the pandemic i think helped us all to understand that understand more deeply and more effectively that The power of technology in a learning situation almost always resides when it's coupled with when it's there to support and aid and really foster and help amplify what teachers do day in and day out. So powerful examples were, um, I think teachers are deeply attuned on many levels to what their children need. And that is not just the academics. You know, they are people who are committed and understand that learning is about, you know, what people are talking about in this day and age, the whole child. And paying attention to your students' well-being, Mm -hmm. being able to make connections and have conversations with them that could alleviate stresses, you know, all of those human ingredients really, you know, surfaced during the pandemic. Yeah. And they surfaced because educators understand that you do indeed have to take care of and nurture the whole child. And technology, um, I think it was accelerated in so many ways. I mean, one thing that happened is literally computers got put into every student's hand for the most part at least every student that was continuing to engage with with their schools and you know for for so many children in this country that in and of itself is a game changer yeah and ensuring that those children had that they had ways of getting online from their homes was also a big game changer because you know we're we're in a community in queens where Lots of people don't have strong, robust internet connections from their homes. And I know how hard the educators and leadership that we work with in our local school district, District 24, worked to make sure that kind of access happened. The other thing that really has nothing to do with technology, which I know is not the point of this conversation, but it is a point about educators and learning is, you know, we saw this, our local community is Corona, Corona Queens. It was described at the height of the pandemic in New York as the epicenter of the epicenter. And the educators in the local schools rolled up their sleeves and turned to, they, they turned their schools into food distribution centers. They made sure families had what they needed. They said to me, you know, Margaret, through a chunk of this period of time, we weren't focused on learning, we were focused on helping people survive. And, you know, I think it's important because as a nation, we tend to be very critical of our schools and our teachers. And it was a moment when we saw, like up close and personal, the, you know, the power of what educators do day in and day out. First and foremost, we have to take care of our children's basic needs. And they know that more than anyone else. And then, yes, now, you know, everybody's working so hard to help close some of the learning gaps that surfaced during that time. And um, and there are lots of ways technologies can be powerful tools in that process. But they, you know, my personal belief is, and this this is through many decades of work in this area, is that you know, technologies are best deployed when they are kind of effective handmaidens for the people who sit at the center of the educational process, which are the teachers. So the, the other thing I was going to mention, because I do think they're you know, there are really poignant and important um, examples of the way you can use technology to um, more effectively enable the whole child to kind of bring themselves forward. And one of the organizations that I'm um, very involved with and um, we do a lot of work with here at the New York Hall of Science is called the Scratch Foundation. And Scratch is the sort of universal children's programming language. It's a block based programming language and uh, developed by an MIT faculty member, professor named Mitch Resnick, who runs the wonderful lab called the Center for Lifelong Kindergarten. Wow. So, just the name of that lab should tell you something about Mitch's aspirations. And Scratch is a wonderful example of embodying those because it is so much more than just teaching kids how to code. It is really a platform that nurtures and supports sort of creative expression. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anybody can go onto the Scratch Foundation website and see examples of so many different kinds of projects that, you know, kids are creating. And, you know, not surprisingly right now, so many children are focused on what's happening in ukraine and mm-hmm. you know doing what kids do which is wanting to signal support camaraderie empathy all of those kinds of things and i think you know what's what's great about a technology product like scratch and other other kinds of tools for creative expression or for you know tools that really are designed not so much to Teach you something, but but enable you to learn through doing and creation and expression is is that they they give young people a a, a different kind of voice mm-hmm. in the educational process. And yeah. you know, you're a father, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there's. I think you mentioned you have four children. Yeah, there's. That's probably what you relish most, you know, as a parent is. Seeing your children acquire a perspective, a point of view, you know, a sense of understanding about the world, acquiring those tools for interpretation and problem solving and thinking things through. And, you know, those are the skills that we know now as adults are critically important to nurturing and developing and making sure they can endure.
0: I tell you, you've just made me think of something, Margaret, and and I'm going to just throw this in there because it's really, really interesting. You know, we talked there about one of the positive examples of how children can not just learn, but understand the thought process and and what they need to do to learn and be inquisitive. Now, on the flip side of all the technology that children have access to today, and you said, you know, with Ukraine, they can send a message. And one of the things that I'm pretty sure concerns most um parents, my myself included, is children spending too much time gaming in these alternate universes where they're totally engaged, they're in the zone, and they're and and everybody's concerned about this as parents. Although you know we didn't do that one in our day, etc. But I heard this thing the other night, and it changed my perspective on it completely, and and, and I think you alluded to it there. And it was a podcast I was listening to with a futurist who's also a gamer. And her perspective was, no, it's good for children. It's good for children. But this is what you need to ask the child. You need to ask the child on that particular game you are spending a lot of time on. What does it take to be good at it? You have to ask them what skills do they need to acquire to succeed at that game? And then you need to monitor them to see if those particular skills are actually enhancing and if they are her conclusion was well then it's a good game and yeah. that's got me thinking that kind of they're they're engaged they're hooked in but if there's a positive way that their skills are progressing then that can't necessarily be a, a negative but on the flip side of that do you see negatives in some of these things that children are exposed to today, te- technology-wise?
1: You know, I think the the point, the futurist you were listening to was making is a very important point, which, you know, is kind of like baseline level set. You you always need to be in conversation with your children. Like, uh, it's a great question. It's a wonderful question. What do you need to do to be successful? Because I just, when you said that, I, I just saw, you know a little boy in front of me just starting to chatter away about all of the all of the things he needs to do it's it's very evocative and powerful and but the larger point and you know this goes back to kind of the the founding of Sesame Street Sesame Street was never meant to be a kind of plug in play opportunity it was meant to foster dialogue in children's homes among mm. their caretakers and them and what was happening on the TV and it's you know it's really i think done that well and there's tons of research in the field of children's media broadly not just interactive tech but media broadly that shows the the power of that of the importance of being in dialogue and i think there is a kind of dystopian view that is worth pointing to and <laughs> Again, dating myself, but this was a very prescient book written in the 80s by a poet named Marge Piercy. The book is called He, She, It, and in in writing this book, um, Piercy spent a lot of time with the then kind of burgeoning AI community in the Cambridge, Massachusetts area where she lived, and you know did a lot of work back in the day. You know. They used to say Route 123 in Boston was like the tech hub of the world. It was kind Mm -hmm. of pre-Silicon Valley. Yeah. Very true. And so she did a huge amount of research for this book, which is part of what makes the story and narrative so powerful. But whenever anybody asks me that question, I always think about her description of a genre of experience that she talked about in the book, and they were called stimmies. So they were immersive experiences that drew you in so deeply. The dystopian moment was when you couldn't leave them, you couldn't escape from it. Uh-huh. And I, I point that out because I think I think, you know, one of the risks, particularly for younger children, is that if you fork it all over to the tech and you're not in conversation with your kids, or they're not in conversation with each other you run the risk of losing them Mm -hmm. inside a medium that often has kids involved in mastering narratives that are highly destructive and violent and, you know, aggressive and all of that. I don't want to get sanctimonious about that, but I I do think it's worth paying attention to. It's worth our asking the questions um, because you don't want to get lost in Anything ever, I mean, occasionally lost, yeah. right, can be a good thing for sure.
0: And it's it's a really great point. And it's not a day goes by for me right now, and when we we talk about immersive experiences, where I don't hear the word metaverse, right? And in fact, uh, Larissa and I, I think it was the day before last, we were actually in a metaverse. We're doing at a town hall, and it was really eye-opening. Now, when we speak to our customers, when we speak to technologists, the metaverse comes into the equation and it's always associated with education in some way Mm. or another. What's Mm. your thoughts on the metaverse? And I know there's a lot of buzz and hype and it's not 100% clear, but what do you think about this futuristic, fully immersive iteration of the internet and connectivity
1: well you know again i think i think it's where and how you design those experiences to make room for human agency and ingenuity in the engagement so you know again i'll i draw in a close to home example at the new york hall of science we have an exhibition called connected worlds and it's you know sort of at its root it's an exhibition that is about sort of broadly, themes of environmental sustainability. So Connected Worlds is comprised of a, of a set of different biomes, a, a wetlands, a, there's a reservoir, there's a jungle, there's a mountain valley area, and there's a desert. And in the middle of these biomes, is these, these are all digitally rendered. They're all projected environments. Um, in the middle of the biomes is a again, a digitally rendered 80 foot high waterfall that is the source of water for life in the different biomes. And the exhibit is designed to uh, enable visitors to be highly engaged in shaping and directing what happens in the environment. So to move the water, water is the, the resource that has to be shared. By these different environments. To move the water into different environments, you use these reflective logs that enable the water to pool or dam and be directed in certain ways. And as water flows into environments, you are able to hold out your hand and create a seed. And then you can drop the seed. And if there's sufficient water, it grows. So you are responsible for populating the biomes and managing the balance across the different, oh. the different kinds of habitats. Yeah. And what I love about it is that fundamentally, it's an experience that gives our visitors and especially young people a sense of kind of possibility and agency in processes. And that's just kind of a non-negotiable, important aspect of mm-hmm. learning. Yeah. Um, it's particularly important when it comes to um, the kind of learning and the kinds of challenges that we have that to face ahead. Into now. Yeah, yeah exactly. That lie ahead. Yeah. So, I, you know, there can be, like when you talk about the metaverse, there can be the Marge Piercy, Stimmy version of the metaverse that doesn't let you leave, that doesn't let you escape, that doesn't really allow you to do anything other than to be all subsumed by. Um, the experience that's taking place in there, but there can also be different versions of the metaverse that make room for your action, your agency, what you can create in the process. And I, I think that, you know, the jury's very much out on where we're going to land on that.
0: Switching gears a a little bit. I don't want to go negative because I think that was a really, really positive part of the discussion. But when we look at, we we talked there about some of the downsides of being too immersed, not being able to get out. When the internet came around and it was like, well, this is incredible now. You have access to all this information. And then we never really thought about that some of that information could be spurious, questionable. When social media turned around, we were like, well, this is a really great way of connecting people and sharing things. But then again, there was the, the downside of uh, weaponization, of, of disinformation. Now, all of these things can have a, a detrimental, a spectacularly detrimental effect on the educational process because it's being manipulated for a nefarious means. Do you do work with the government? Uh, Margaret, or policymakers, to identify some of these potential problems with new technologies and and guide them in in legislation or even the way they uh, determine the curriculum.
1: Yeah, um, you know that it, it is such an important um, observation and set of questions. And unlike the UK, in this country, curriculum development really is not the purview of government agencies, certainly not at the federal level. And really, states don't, for the most part, get involved in curriculum development. They will get involved in curriculum guidance, sometimes development. And I think where government at the federal and state level in this country can, you know, play a role is um, by highlighting and um, calling attention to you know, where there's both sort of need and opportunity. So, you know, let's just go back to the example of social media. I I think one of the things that many people have learned in recent times is that we know very, very, very little about how algorithms operate in our lives. You know, again, you're going to hear a through line in what I'm saying, but I think you know, I think we should be thinking about not just about teaching kids how to code. In fact, coding is rapidly going to become irrelevant because more and more coding systems like Scratch are going to be uh-huh. are going to be block-based. They're going to be sort of systems of systems, if you like. And, yeah. you know, there are always sort of like foundational skills that I think we need that center around discernment and interpretation and kind of thinking problems through and asking questions and all of that, but you know when it comes to the tech world and how we, all of us now, interact with it through sort of algorithms that mediate and moderate and, and determine the experiences we have, we need tools that enable us to have more say in those processes. I'll give you another example. I, I went to a really interesting workshop a number of years ago, maybe five years ago or so, that um, folks at Stony Brook University on Long Island were hosting, very interdisciplinary. And um, the workshop was called Algorithms Are Us. And what they were inviting, a collection of people from all sorts of disciplines. So computer scientists, theater, um, artists, you know, social theory people, like a whole mix of folks um, which was fascinating and they hired a really wonderful talented person to kind of mediate and moderate the workshop and they got us all thinking about um you know what that meant algorithms are us and you know, really the question that I think became central to all of us is, how do we have more agency over algorithmic processes and behaviors? How do we create more transparency around those practices? And uh, one of the designs that somebody in the workshop came up with, which still, like, I still don't think anybody has created, is kind of a, a gauge that you could set to draw in information sources. So not to get political, but You know, this is probably the easiest way to explain it is, you know, you could you could on one end of the spectrum, you've got, you know, CNN or MSNBC. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got Fox and other more conservative channels with a whole bunch of stuff in between. And just enabling you to choose like how that mix mix Mm -hmm. is a hugely empowering idea. That, that would make us all think, yeah. it would make us all think, which is kind of the ultimate goal. Rather than the downside of technology, it, it's both an upside and a downside, is that technology can be a really important tool for managing our behaviors. So if you look at technology's deployment in the whole universe of smart cities, it's, it's really about how do, you, how do you get humans behaving so that we are being more environmentally conscious in the best sense of the word the challenge there is there's almost never choice in those processes they're hidden from us and there are you know there are people much more versed in this than me talking about this these kinds of issues but the opportunity to create tools that you know allow us to have decision-making around how, how algorithms are behaving in our lives. I mean, people do that now on, on Netflix or other streaming services by creating different profiles. So what you get fed varies depending upon, you know, your profile of viewing habits. So, mm-hmm. you know, you put all your whatever reality TV stuff on this channel and you put all your documentary watching on this channel. And, yeah. you know, you it's a way of doing that. But there... Yeah. I think there are interesting ways in which, you know, people who are designing these systems could, could think about hand them. us those yeah. kinds of tools.
0: But You've got me thinking now, Margaret, as well. Is TV less educational now than it was? And maybe this is because I grew up with the BBC, but there seems to be a heavy emphasis in everything on the BBC around educating you on something or other. Right, whether it was a nature program, a history program, a current affairs documentary. But now you could go an entire well, not even an entire week, you could go forever and, and just be consumed in sitcoms or comedy shows or yeah. something else.
1: You TV, have to TV see T V has it
0: become out. less educational, right? The broadcast TV.
1: BBC still exists, right? I, I think. Um PBS in the States still exists and you know that was that was what I was raised on, right? Um and so many people were. I mean, I remember a friend whose family moved when she was maybe eight or nine, maybe not even that old, from Sarajevo to escape the conflict mm. there. And she told me I learned English by watching PBS. You know, so many people have that story, right? Yeah. And I think it's all still there. It's just because choice has multiplied right you your responsibilities as a parent or as an educator yeah you know whatever role you're playing they also have multiplied so it requires more oversight and diligence and pointing the way and
0: okay so look we're almost um out of time the way we like to finish our new season and i've absolutely really enjoyed our conversation it's been fascinating and, and and really uplifting uh, and we like to finish with a little segment called TGI to go, right? Where I'm going to ask you 15 uh, multiple choice questions. And the, the answer is the thing you prefer the most. So if you're ready, we'll do ready. TGI to go. Okay, here we go. TGI to go. So number one, cats or dogs? Dogs. Do you have dogs?
1: Uh, not at the moment, but I always have. Okay,
0: nice. Singing or dancing?
1: Oh, well, singing, but I do it horribly.
0: <laughs> when you're driving?
1: When I'm driving, always. That's when I do. Alone. That's
0: when I do. It. Yeah. Nobody
1: else in the car. <laughs>
0: Now, you're in New York, so the Yankees or the Mets?
1: The Mets. There are neighbors yeah. here in Queens, and my family comes from a long line of baseball matriarchs who love the Brooklyn Dodgers. And if you love the Dodgers, you're not allowed to love the Yankees.
0: Excellent, excellent. The High Line or Bryant Park?
1: Oh, that's hard. High Line, it's magical. Yeah.
0: I've never I've never been It's
1: magical. You must you must come and then you'll visit my museum too.
0: Well I'm i (laughs) definitely coming to visit your museum, Robert. There's absolutely no doubt about that for sure. AT and T Verizon or T Mobile?
1: Verizon. Totally loyal to Verizon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Basking Ridge, New Jersey.
1: Absolutely. And Involved with the Hall of Science for 37 years. Of course.
0: Absolutely, of course. They were the ones that introduced us um to the Hall of Science right. and hence to you. Right. Absolutely. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Hiking or cycling?
1: Oh hiking.
0: Star Trek or Star Wars? It's always a divisive one, this one. Star Wars. Good one. I'd go Star Wars too. <laughs> Sci-fi or thriller? thriller reading or writing obviously you do a lot of both mm-hmm. but which one do you reading prefer?
1: reading yeah. yeah
0: and sticking on reading I, I threw this one in here for you jane austen or charles dickens
1: oh jane austen mm-hmm.
0: yeah my i've got my daughters reading jane austen right now and where they were born in the uk was the birthplace of jane austen the same county oh wow so we keep telling that's them that's lovely
1: well i have to lean into woman so (laughs) no
0: Oxford or Cambridge another British one I apologize
1: it is very British well Oxford because um, I have a very fond memory of visiting there uh, with my late husband it was an incredibly special trip yeah Uh,
0: and you visited the university yeah
1: yeah he was he was doing some work with people there and I was tagging along happily
0: (laughs) yeah I think I threw that in there because it was the boat race last weekend—the mm-hmm. famous boat yeah. race between the two of them,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Arizona or Alaska.
1: Oh wow! Well, I've never been to Alaska, um, uh, and i, I associate. <laughs> uh, interesting. I won't say that out loud. Um, I, uh, you know, Alaska. Yeah. Even though I've never been, I I want to go, and and it's—I know it's an incredibly beautiful.
0: Place. Yeah, I've never been, but it looks—it does yeah. look wonderful. But I did go to Arizona for the first time a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and I thought that was amazing as well. It, it really—the and I couldn't think—I thought they both begin with an A, and they're very, very different. Very so different. <laughs> very different. Sticking on technology, Apple or Google? Oh, Apple. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about Google and the Google Classroom? And, what so, to I, you know, I think
1: Google as, you know, when I say Apple, I just, uh, I, I just really like, I From, think about my own iPhone, yeah, my yeah, own yeah. personal yeah. preference, I, you know, I think they, they are both examples of companies that have done incredible work in the education space and Google Classroom, you know, it's super powerful and incredibly ubiquitous and, you know, easy to use and all of that. Yeah. So.
0: And the final one for today: an opera or a musical? An opera. Yeah. Any particular favourite?
1: Oh well, you know the classics, right? La Bohème, yeah. and yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the opera that, like, I was spoon fed as a child.
0: Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Okay then, Margaret, we've finished our episode today i want to say thank you very much for joining us uh, i've like i said i really enjoyed our conversation and what's next for you what's what's the next project in front of you at the new york hall of
1: science well one of the one of the projects we've been working on which will debut this fall is uh, we have been building with the city of new york a science themed preschool so a school for 4 year olds on our campus And the children, (laughs) the children will look out from their classroom windows over our rocket park and see these beautiful rockets that were part of the original NASA space program artifacts we have here. So we are, um, we're really excited to bring that program of work to, you know, to fruition and then build on it. it. It gives us an opportunity as a STEM learning institution to have a trajectory of opportunities for, you know, for our youngest learners on up through college, which is great.
0: What an absolutely fascinating conversation with Margaret. You know, Margaret has achieved so much in this domain and has such a positive perspective and outlook on the benefits of education harnessing technology that she always remains cognizant of the absolute indispensable human touch of teachers and parents in the educational process. I can't wait to visit the New York Hall of Science with my children next time I'm in New York, which, fingers crossed, should be this summer. Also check out their website which is in the show notes, it's a fantastic institution. So please subscribe to our podcast on all the usual podcast channels, leave a review or rating if you feel so inclined, it certainly helps us. Check out two other Amdocs podcasts that are brilliant and available now, The Future of Tech with Avishai Charlin, and Points of View with our own CMO, Gil Rosen. Also visit our website, amdocs.com forward slash the great indoors for a full recap of all four seasons so far and you know we'll be back in two weeks for another great edition of the great indoors i'm matt roberts for amdocs in toronto have a great day wherever you are